Well, this morning we're going to continue on in 1 Kings chapter 17. Whoop. Always fighting the wind. Those that are new, that's what we, li- we deal with out here, are always fighting the wind. Okay, we're in uh, chapter 18 this morning, and as we begin, I want to remind you that the people we're talking about today are not mythological characters. They're real characters that lived and served the Lord just like you and I, and they walked in a way that is exemplary to us. And this is, we're beginning this sermon to the next one, is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I think it's one of the most powerful stories in the entire Bible. And and I'm excited. I was going to try to get to the whole thing today, but it's impossible. So it's just going to have to come in two sections. So we pick up here after three and a half years of drought. There's been three and a half years of no rain. And the drought is so severe that people are now searching for water to preserve life in the nation. And it's in the midst of this, it's in the midst of Elijah living with a widow, a poor widow, in a, in a place outside of the land of Israel, that the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. So we're going to read this morning 1 Kings 18, verses 1 through 20. If you would please, stand with me to honor the Lord uh, as we read his word this morning. 1 Kings 18, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys and perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. Verse six, so they divided the land between them to pass through it. And Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here. He would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you where I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said, Is it you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel. 
and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right. So after years of a regular routine, after years of being with this widow and and living off of the Lord supplying from this jar of flour and uh, oil that just never seems to run out by the supernatural providence of the Lord, the word of the Lord comes to to Elijah and says, it's time. It's time for you to go and speak what I have planned for you to speak. It's time for you to go and do what I have appointed for you to do, to go and show yourself to Ahab because it's finally time for me to send rain. And I want you this morning to grasp, and this is part of what I think you should do with every story that you read in the Bible. After you read it and after you think you understand what has happened there, that you work to to put yourself in the place of these people and work to, to think about what it would be like to actually do what is being spoken of in this place and grasp the incredible faith and courage that it would take for Elijah to go and stand before Ahab and to follow after the word of the Lord. This is a, there has been a major multinational manhunt going on for Elijah for years. It speaks of it in detail. Ahab has turned the nation inside and out trying to find Elijah. And he has gone to every surrounding country looking for him, all the way to the extent that he has made the rulers of those nations swear a promise that they have not seen this guy anywhere in their nation. He is determined to find Elijah. Ahab wants to force or manipulate Elijah in some way to get the rain to turn back on, and it's clear that Jezebel wants to just kill him. She is a bloodthirsty murderer, and she wants to kill Elijah as soon as she can get his hand, her hands on him. But he is called by God to go and face this wicked king and this wicked queen alone. Elijah, it's time for you to go and stand before Ahab and face him to bear a message that is unmistakably going to be carried out or not. The message is clear. One of us is going to make it rain, and one of us is not going to be able to make it rain. And it's going to be a showdown as to whose God is real and whose is not. And there's not going to be any, any unequi- there's not going to be any equivocation about who is, who's real here and who is not. And so this is a massive step of faith as Elijah goes back before this king who hates him and says, my God will make it rain. And it's going to rain or it's not going to rain. And we're all going to know who God is or who is not. And we should not forget what uh, Justin pointed out to us a few weeks ago, that Baal was the Canaanite god of fertility of crops, which largely revolves around what? Rain. If it doesn't rain, your crops aren't going to grow. And this is not a, a mistake. The Lord often works in this, this way. This is the same way that God took apart the idols of Egypt by one plague at a time, showing that their gods were false gods until he had wrecked the whole pantheon of Egyptian gods and then brought his people out of Egypt. And so we're doing it again here. This God that is supposed to be the God of the storm and the rain has been completely shut off. But he is going to show that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can and will make it rain. But I want to point out to you this constant theme in the Bible of one person with the Lord being enough to stand against any multitude of people. 
One person against all odds, one person against any powerful evil person or any group of people is enough because the Lord God is enough when he is with us. We think of Moses. Yes, Aaron was with him as a mouthpiece, but Moses is the one that stood before Pharaoh as one man, one stumbling man who said, I'm not the right guy for this job. He either had a speech impediment or he was just terrified of public speaking or whatever it was, Moses did not want to go and stand before Pharaoh. But he eventually said, yes, Lord, I'll go. And he stood before Pharaoh, the greatest king of the earth at that point in time, and said, let my people go. And he stood there with the Lord, with the power of the Lord upon him, and he was not destroyed by that Pharaoh. We look at Esther as a woman who stood alone and faced down King Ahasuerus, who walked in at the threat of death to plead for the life of her people. But she stood with the Lord and with the strength of the Lord, and the heart of the king was persuaded to act in a different way. Elijah went forward alone at the risk of death to proclaim God's word. He went in his weakness. Moses went in his weakness. Esther went in her weakness. But that is when God is shown strong, is when we are weak, when the situation is impossible for us to accomplish. And unless the Lord acts, we will surely be undone. But it is in this situation that the Lord acts and is the most glorified. And so I want to point out two lessons here, which I think are very, very important for us. The first is this. When God prompts you by his spirit and according to scripture, we must say yes and we must obey. When God prompts you by his spirit and according to scripture, we must say yes. What does this mean? This means when we have an overwhelming sense that something ought to be done and that we know that it should be done. And we go to the scriptures and we find the scriptures are very clear that what we feel like we're being led to do is right and is good. But usually when we're prompted and pressed in that way by God's spirit, it is something that is scary because it's something that's outside of what we know we can do, way outside of our norm. It's usually something that's deeply sacrificial and is going to require a a radical change in our life. It is beyond what we can accomplish by some plan that we can come up with and usually by far And so it is going to require us to walk by faith. And when we have to walk by faith, it's a scary thing. It's not an easy thing. It often feels like a lonely walk because we are alone often in that walk for the very reasons I'm saying. God intentionally often isolates us so that we know we have nowhere else to go but to him. But when we go to him and he acts on our behalf, we find him faithful and true and we glorify him. We are radically encouraged by something that is beyond us, something that is supernatural of the Lord that happens and we give praise and glory to God. And so I want to ask you this morning, where are you in obeying the leadings of the Lord? Do you obey the leadings of the Lord? When God's spirit presses you to do something, Do you shut that off and and press it down and and try to get it out of your thinking? Or do you obey? Do you go and do that? We shouldn't take for granted these characters in the scriptures when it says the word of the Lord came to them and then they obeyed. It seems so simple in the scriptures. But they lived the life just like you live. And it is important for us that when we feel the pressing of God's spirit on our heart to act, that we act according to God's word and obey. That's the first lesson here. 
The second is don't be afraid to stand alone for the Lord. I don't know when or if you have had to take a stand for the Lord alone in your life, but don't be afraid to stand alone for the Lord. When you stand with the Lord and you are convinced by Scripture that what you are doing is right and good and the Lord is with you in it, there is some purpose in it. And the Lord will be glorified in it. And people will see the work of the Lord. And I want to read to you a a passage that's greatly encouraging to me in this, which is from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through the end of the chapter, which talks about the salvation of God, which is so near to us, which is accomplished by Christ and will never be broken and never be taken away. And it is okay to stand because even if all the world is against us, we will not be forsaken by Christ. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That is an incredible passage. I hope you'll mark it in your Bible. And when you feel alone and forsaken, understand that the salvation that Christ Jesus has wrought for you on the cross will never be taken away and that you cannot be separated from the love of Christ and his work in you will continue. By faith, take your stand in Jesus Christ. Nothing will destroy the salvation that has been accomplished by him. What can this world do to us? So Elijah went. He put on his sandals and he went back to Ahab. It's in verse 3 that we're introduced to a different character, a character named Obadiah, a character that uh, we're going to camp out on this morning because Obadiah has a lot to say to us in this audience in this church. Obadiah was a common Old Testament name. Uh, It's not believed that he has any relation to the Old Testament prophet. Obadiah, it says, was over Ahab's household. It's like Ahab's chief of staff. He was the guy running the show and making things happen in the kingdom. Now, we would assume that this person would not be a godly person because he's running Ahab, this wicked king's household. And so they have to drop a, the author drops a textual note in here. If you have the parentheses there in the end of verse 3 and the verse 4, that wants us to know who Obadiah was, that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And we learn from uh, later on that he feared the Lord from his youth. And that when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, as we also learn later in the chapter, she went around killing them, exterminating them, getting rid of them. Obadiah secretly worked against her and took a hundred of these prophets or these godly people and hid them by fifties in a cave. And it seems by his own means provided them with bread and water. 
So Jezebel was actively working to crush the worship of the Lord and get rid of these people. But Jezebel was working also at the same time to actively build up the priesthood of Baal. We're going to see here at the end of this chapter that she has put together a priesthood of 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets for the, the female deity Asherah, where you've got an 850 group of people here, significant group that she has built up by her own hand. But Obadiah, as a person in her own household, is actively and secretly working against her. So Obadiah has been charged with killing them, but instead he hides them. Courageous in faith, fearing the Lord. And so here's the note, and here's what I want to talk about for some time. There's something very important in this to this audience of our church. Our church is an unusual congregation. And why is that? Is because we have so many people in this congregation that work in some way for the federal government, the state government, the local government, or the military. I would say the vast majority of people in our church in some way work for the government. And so there's a big question here. And there's a big pattern here that I want to point out to you because there is a strong biblical pattern in the Bible of people, godly people, serving in ungodly governments. Godly people serving ungodly kings and masters. And this is an unusual thing. This is not something that we would put together, I think, if we were going to write the Bible ourselves. It would be a different story. You would not have a godly person serving as the chief of staff of Ahab's household. But if we look back at this strong pattern in the Bible, we begin with the most important character. I mean, by far and away, the strongest example of this is Daniel. Daniel is one of the most godly characters in all of the Bible, one who God's Spirit does so much to reveal to him things that are happening and things that were to happen, and his godliness is known throughout the kingdom. And yet, who was Daniel? Daniel was a government worker, a high-up government official in the kingdom of Babylon and then in Persia. He served wicked kings, uh, three of them. And in his wickedness, in the wickedness of those kings, Daniel lived in great godliness. So we're going to just put that on the shelf and hold on to that for a second. The second great example of this in the Bible is Joseph. Joseph, in his godliness, served as a, a high-up official in the kingdom of Egypt. He served the Pharaoh of Egypt. Again, one of the greatest rulers of the world at that time, and Joseph was his number two man, a godly person serving an ungodly king in an ungodly nation. A third example of this is Mordecai. Mordecai served as the number two person for Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus, more largely known as Xerxes I, the great Archimedean king, again, a great king of the earth, a wicked king, whose number two man was a godly person, a God-fearing person. If we go to the New Testament, we have lesser examples of this, but still very significant. Who was the first person that was given, whose family, through him, the, the Holy Spirit was poured out on? It was Cornelius. Cornelius was the first Gentile that God chooses to pour out the Holy Spirit on. Who was Cornelius? Cornelius was a centurion. He was a, a Roman official serving Caesar in an official capacity. And this is who God chose as the first Gentile to pour out his spirit on him in Acts chapter 10. And nowhere in that story is he told to leave the Roman army or leave the service of the Roman government. 
but to serve the Lord in that place. Another example of this in the New Testament, which I find absolutely fascinating, it's a little bit different, but amazing to me, is in the beginning of Acts chapter 13, when it's discussing the, the leaders in the church at Antioch, the first place that Christians were called Christians, and it sort of list, lists out the elder board, if you will, of the, of the church at, at Antioch, and one of those people is Manaean. And the only thing that is given as a descriptor of Manaean is that Manaean was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. What? Like Herod the Tetrarch was evil. He was terrible. I mean, he was an absolute enemy of the church. How is it that a person that is a friend of Herod the Tetrarch is a leader in the early church? Would he not have had to swear off that relationship and leave that person behind? Well, the question that I have for us is, what are we to make of these examples? What are we to do with this consistent example from the Old Testament to the New Testament of godly people serving in ungodly government positions? And the answer is this, that it is not wrong for a godly person to serve in an ungodly government. And so why? Let's talk about this. How is it that Obadiah could have his character and still serve Ahab in an ungodly situation? There's three points that I want to make here. And the first is that no earthly government has ever been or ever will be completely righteous. No earthly government ever has been or ever will be completely righteous. Government is corrupt by degrees. And it depends on the government, it depends on the, 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 the arc of that government in history as to whether it starts well, ends terribly, starts terribly, gets better. It depends on where you are on the arc of that government as to what is going on. But human government is always corrupt by degrees because it's made up of sinful people. The only perfectly righteous government that will ever be is the monarchy of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ returns and sets up his kingdom, a kingdom that will have no end, and to the end of his government, there will be no, there will be no in, end to the increase of his government. Why? Because it will be perfect, because he is perfect, and there is no sinfulness in Jesus Christ, and his governing of us, his authority over us will be perfect. But until that day, there will be no perfect government. However, government is for our general good. It is a blessing, a common blessing to mankind. It keeps some degree of order. It keeps some degree of peace. It keeps some degree of prosperity. And in some way, it works to hold off anarchy. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a place, whether you've served in war or served in foreign service in some way, where you have either been in the midst of or very close to anarchy. But it is a scary thing when the wheels come off of a civilization and people are wildly shooting each other in the streets and all of the utilities have stopped and nobody knows what's going on and there's checkpoints in the streets and it's just absolute craziness. This is the anarchy of the world that would be if there was no government. And so government is a common blessing of the Lord. That's first. No earthly government has ever been or ever will be completely righteous. Second, godly people can conduct themselves in a righteous way inside of an ungodly government. Godly people can conduct themselves in a righteous way inside of an ungodly government. Each one of us individually are accountable for our own actions and how we live our lives. 
but we are not held accountable for the choices that other people make in their lives. You will not stand before God and face God for the choices of the person in the office down the hall from you. You will stand before God for your own actions. And so every Christian that is in service in the government or in the military must actively be righteous in their own life, not passively ignoring evil. We must be actively righteous. We must yet also still be patriotic. And this is a weird, crazy dynamic, but we see it in the life of every one of these people. They are godly and they are counter to the ungodly government that they are in, and yet they still in some way are actively patriotic. What are some examples of this? Well, let's look at Obadiah. Actively righteous in hiding these priests and trying to preserve the worship of the Lord. And yet he is loyal to Ahab. He is not working to try to overthrow Ahab. If you look at Mordecai, he is actively righteous in actively seeking the salvation of the Jews that they not be killed. And yet at the same time, he unearths a plan to try to assassinate the king and undoes the plan so that the king is saved. And so he's loyal to the government that he's in. It is a very unusual pattern. It is a pattern that we must examine as we try to live and navigate our own times. And so the first two points are no earthly government has ever been completely righteous. Second, godly people can conduct themselves in a righteous way inside of an ungodly government, actively working to be righteous. And the third is this, that God gives favor according to his purposes. God gives favor according to his purposes. What do I mean by this? None of the people that I just listed, it doesn't make sense that any of those people should be serving in the roles that they were serving in. You read these stories and you say, this doesn't make sense. Why in the world is Joseph in charge? Why would they keep Daniel around? Why would anybody put Mordecai in charge of the government? Why would, why would Obadiah still be around? Apparently people knew that he was godly. He asked Elijah, haven't you heard what I did? Like the godly people know who I am. They know what I'm doing. Don't, don't send me to my death. And so God gives favor according to his will to keep godly people in positions of authority. God uses such godly people inside of ungodly governments. What is he doing with these people? He is preserving nations. He is holding back evil. He is convicting and instructing the world of unrighteousness. You can see it so plainly in this story with Obadiah. Uh, we're getting ready to have all the prophets of Baal and Asherah wiped off the scene in the next chapter. Sorry if you didn't know that. That's what's getting ready to happen. What's going to happen to these people in this cave? They're going to come out of this cave again, and they're going to be needed. And they're going to be used to reinstate the service of the Lord. And so they're going to come out at a time needed. But they wouldn't be in that cave preserved if it had not been for this man who stuck his neck out to preserve them in a way that he was led of the Lord to do. And so God uses godly people by his favor, keeping them in certain places to preserve nations, to hold back evil, and to convict and instruct the world of unrighteousness. If you were a godly person serving in a government position surrounded by ungodly people, I encourage you first to not lose heart in where you are. Do not lose heart in your godliness. Do not compromise your godly character. Do not give up on what you know to be right and true every day. Remember Daniel in his godliness. He was known as a man who prayed three times a day throughout his government work 
And everybody in the government knew about it. But he didn't stop and he wasn't ashamed of it. Live on actively in your godly life. Do not be passive. Do not be silent in your government role. Be salt and light as Jesus has called for us to be in the world. And the Lord will use you in this way, in our time, in our day, to preserve the nation, to hold back evil, and to convict and instruct the world of unrighteousness. Well, some things about Obadiah, fascinating character. Well, it's verses 7 through 16 are the exchange between Obadiah and Elijah. And it goes back and forth, and uh, the, the picture is basically this. Um, turn the page too quickly. We've been looking everywhere for you. Where have you been? If I go and report to Ahab that I found you, and then you don't show up because the Lord takes you somewhere else, he's going to kill me. And so please, I'm a righteous, God-fearing person. Please do not hang me out to dry on this. You've got to promise me that you will actually show up if I go and tell Ahab that you're here. And so Elijah promises him that he will be there. And so, by faith, Obadiah goes and does what he's instructed, and he tells Ahab that he's here and that he's coming. And so verse 17 starts the confrontation between Ahab and Elijah. As Elijah walks in, and Ahab sees him, and it's been a long time since the two of them have seen each other, and he says, is that you, Elijah? And he calls him something. He says, is that you, a troubler of Israel? It's been three and a half years since he has seen him, and he blames him for the evil and the the drought that has come upon the nation. But who is to blame for this? Who has brought this evil on the nation? Is the one who condemned the evil, the troubler? Is the one who called out the evil of the nation, is he the one to blame for this? No, he is not. But this attitude was then, and this attitude persists down through the ages, down to our time right now, that the one who calls out the evil will be called the troubler. The one who says that this is unrighteous will be the one that is condemned. And I tell you today that if you speak out against the evil of our time, if you call the sexual sin of our time what it is as sin and evil, if you call out the redefinition of gender in our day and age, if you call out abortion as the evil that it is, or if you speak for the Christian family and the biblical definition of marriage in the family, or if you speak out for a Christian view on race, what do I mean by that? There are many now that talk about how it's impossible for different races to be reconciled to each other. When the Bible says that in Christ, we can be reconciled to each other through the grace given to us in Jesus. If you say those words, if you say any of these things, you will be called just like Elijah, a troubler, a person that's stirring up problems in our time. Will you not be quiet? You're a fool. Will you not get with the new program? Because there's a new program in the nation of Israel under Ahab. We've brought in a new priesthood. We've done away with the old priesthood. The old is gone. There's a new morality. There's new leadership. Stop being a troubler. But the prophetic voice always brings with it trouble. Why is that? Because the prophetic voice always calls out sin. It always brings a convicting word from the Lord that unsettles people, will unsettle the king, will unsettle the hearts of the people that are around us. And this is what Elijah has come to do. He is a prophet from the Lord. And his boldness is shocking. Because Ahab, in his court, in his house, calls Elijah a troubler. And what does Elijah do? He turns right back around and says, I'm not the trouble. 
you're the trouble. You're the one that has misled these people. You and your household and your fathers, you are the ones that have led the people away from the commands of the Lord and have put to death the prophets of the Lord. You are the one who is wicked, not me. Unless we think that the Old Testament is somehow unusual in this situation, we need to look also to Jesus because some people don't think that Jesus spoke this way, but he did. And he spoke this way powerfully. I would encourage you to read Matthew chapter 23. It's not a verse because it's a long chapter. And the whole chapter is Jesus denouncing the scribes and Pharisees, those who were supposed to be the religious leaders of that time, those who were supposed to be pointing the people to the Lord and helping them understand the salvation of God. And they were radically misleading the people into all kinds of legalistic sin and death. And Jesus spends a whole chapter pronouncing woe after woe and condemnation after condemnation and pointing the finger at them so harshly that he ends up calling them whitewashed graves, that they are dead in their trespasses and sins and they are leading the people astray. And so the righteous person is always willing to point out sin for the purpose of pointing people to the Lord in his righteousness. And so Elijah sets up a direct confrontation, and he, he calls for a challenge. He calls for a showdown in verse 19, which is what we're going to talk about next week. I'm excited about it. Elijah is strong in his faith. Over time, the Lord has strengthened him in his faith. Each time that he says yes to the Lord, and each time he acts by faith, and the Lord meets him there, his faith is strengthened until he is prepared in his heart to believe God in a great showdown between the king and his wicked queen and the Lord God to see who is, the, who is truly telling the truth here. What is God really doing in that time and in ours? And so as I close, I just want to bring these things together a little bit. Many people think that our time is unusual or that our time is somehow worse than any other time in history. And it's just not the truth. Our time is very similar to every other time. But it's a time of wickedness just like there has been great wickedness in the world throughout time. It's just different. It looks a little different than things in the past. But we are living in a similar situation. People have always been ruled by ungodly rulers. But there has always been a remnant of God's people preserved during those times. Always. So often, as you'll see, Elijah feels like he's totally alone. But he's not. There's always a preserved remnant. And they are preserved to rise back up again as the Lord pours out mercy and turns hearts back to him again. And so I call on you this morning. What do you believe? Who are you following? Are you walking after the latest moral fad? It was, this was a moral fad in this time. The king and queen came in and wiped out the old ways and brought in a whole new system of religion to change the people's minds. Within the last 50 years, there has been a whole new morality brought into our country, trying to sweep away old ways, the ways of Christ, and, and institute an entirely new moral situation. Which way are you walking in? Who are you believing? What are you following? Are you following in that way, or are you listening to the God-given conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart? We have a conscience, a resident conscience, and the Lord keeps pricking our conscience, and he speaks to our soul and is seeking to draw us to himself, and we have to actively turn away from it, and I encourage you not to do so. 
I press you, I urge you to walk by faith. Going back to the very beginning of this sermon, saying yes to the leadings of the Lord. If you know Christ as your Savior, hear and follow after the leadings of the Lord. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, for the very first time, say yes to God's Spirit by accepting, by believing in the Lord Jesus, by saying yes to what it is that he is convicting you, turning away from this world. There is one true God. It was that way then, and it's this way now. And that God still lives. He is merciful to us in Christ. He is ready to forgive, but he will not forbear his judgment forever. Eventually, he will bring judgment. And so today, I call for you to come. I call for you to turn away from the evil of this time. Turn to Jesus Christ. Believe in him, either for the first time, or recommit yourself in following after him in this day that we might live for Christ during our time. Please bow your head. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for the preservation of your word and for the characters that are in this story. I love the characters of the Old Testament. They're inspiring to me. I thank you for Elijah, and I thank you for Obadiah and the lessons that we learn from their lives. I thank you for Daniel and for Joseph and for uh, uh, Mordecai and for uh, all these other characters that we learn from as righteous examples of faith. Lord, I pray that you would help us. I pray for every person in the audience here today that holds a government position and struggles with it, especially in this time, trying to know what in the world am I supposed to do in the position that I am in. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen every one of them to understand that you have a plan for them and that they would live in a righteous way where they are, that they would be like light in darkness and they would entrust themselves to your favor, that none of us would seek to be actively offensive, but that we would seek to be actively righteous, that we would live for the Lord in the place where we are. Lord, give us great wisdom. Help us to know how to do this how it is that we might be one that is helping to preserve and strengthen in our time. Lord, help us, I pray. May we be light in darkness. And I pray for those that do not know you as Savior today, those that are struggling mightily with the new morality that has been brought into our time. I pray that their hearts would be turned towards you, that they would see the falseness of these ways and that they would no longer be double-minded, but their hearts would be turned towards you, that they would fully put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they would see themselves as ruined sinners and without the grace and mercy of God that there will be no salvation. Lord, today may they believe. We trust you, we love you, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.